talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ken and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is driving the board. The Tie Cats and the regular season on a high note. Bring on, Montreal. Oski wee wee. Here's Don Thompson. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board. Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks in the newsroom. Feel free to jump into the convo. I'd love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. Uh, also, don't forget about our social media website or social media pages, including Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the poll question of the day waiting for you there. We'll talk about that uh, in just a second. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Uh, Will, what'd you do, uh, Diana? Uh, did Di- Diana, did you make it to the Tie Cat game, or you just settled for a Browns game? <laughs> I didn't make it. You know what? We didn't. My husband and I did not make it to the uh, the Tie Cats game this weekend. We did watch the Browns win by a very small margin yesterday. Ooh, yes. mm-hmm. Squeak by. So that would have been a bit more action anyway, I'm thinking, around the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we went to our, you know, Cleveland Browns viewing bar with our friends, so. Beautiful. And uh, so my son and I did our annual pilgrimage to see a Ticat game this past weekend, uh, and what an absolutely great time it was. Uh, uh, Angela Mosca did a big tribute to him before the show. Uh, very, very heartwarming. Sent a chill up your spine just watching all the stuff. And uh, it's hilarious because Mike's, my kid says, I just love watching a game in Hamilton, man. He goes, the people are great. <laughs> because it's just a cast of characters. Your dog thinks And a so cast too. of... Uh, Yes, the the black and gold and what have you. So uh, just an absolutely great time to uh, and a great way to finally uh, end the season and hopefully the success continues as uh, we move on. Which is the reason I played the song today, uh, which is actually as old as I am, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, as well, uh, Diana Weeks and Ted Michaels will be joining us around the big round table coming up after the four thirty news, and uh, everybody will join us for that. Will included. Uh, good news all weekend, of course. Uh, Health Canada approving. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccination for those 5 to 11 years of age. And then a whole swack of it arrives at the Hamilton Airport on uh, Sunday night, and uh, we're off and running. Uh, Let's find out exactly what happens next. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson with us, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. I am. I hope you are as well. Yes, thanks so much. So obviously we saw this great big plane come in. We know it's not all for us. Uh, How much of Hamilton does get from this initial shipment uh, to get us started? Well, we're just getting the the final numbers actually on that in terms of what we'll get. We definitely will have vaccine in hand. We have 42,000 local children between the ages of 5 and 11 to vaccinate. And we will certainly get enough to uh, get all of them done with our, our clinics opening actually on Thursday. 8 a.m., you can start booking in your um, your vaccine appointments tomorrow and then uh, start our getting shots as early as Thursday. So very glad to have this, very glad to have reached this milestone in this campaign and have this available for everybody who's 5 to 11. So what about outlets? Uh, same, similar ideas we did last time when the adults got it, more in schools now, doctor's office, pharmacies. What can you tell us there? 
Well, it's really going to be a whole range of things. We found that, you know, different people really like a different kind of setting depending on what works best for them. So we'll be having our fixed site clinics at Lime Ridge Mall and at the Centre on Barton, as well as having mobile pop-up vaccine clinics throughout the community. Many pharmacies as well are going to be participating in providing the, the vaccine and as well um, we're going to have some some family and youth-friendly clinics. In particular, kids uh, at times can be scared of needles or um, may have some other apprehensions. So our partners at McMaster's Children's Hospital and our, the, their child life specialists there are helping to provide some clinics that are particularly uh, friendly for children who are having those kinds of anxieties as well. So what? all of the, the clinics are up on our on our website at www.hamilton.ca slash getyourvaccine as of tomorrow morning, and you can choose between which one of those best suits you. And what about schools, Doctor? Is it going to go into schools at all? Yeah, so when it comes to the, the school piece, you'll notice that we are having some clinics in schools, particularly for those older children, the children who are 12 to 17 years old. And uh, they'll be um, having um, clinics that have kids from the high schools as well as kids from the feeder schools coming into those. It's a little bit more disruptive when we're um, planning clinics for the little ones because they need their parents there with them, their caregivers there with them. Right. And that's hard to accomplish during the school day um, when they're still trying to carry on with education for our kids at the same time. So likely what will happen over time is we'll continue to look at how the schools fit into the plan. But for now, most of the pediatric doses are going to be in those uh, other clinics that are around the community and it then can be there when parents are able to be off work on the weekends or in the evenings um, and have a, a bigger, more appropriate setting for, for kids to come through and get vaccinated. So it looks like uh, the vaccine is rolling in, that the supply will not be an issue as we've experienced in the past. Uh, at that, at this rate and, and how we are starting out, when do you anticipate getting the bulk of that 42,000 uh, vaccinated? Is this possible uh, before Christmas, uh, shortly after? Any ideas there? Well, certainly from the standpoint of, of how we're set up, we are going to have a lot of appointments available to people over the, you know, the next many weeks to months. And so it'll, I think the, the real question will again be, we'll probably have a, a, a significant turnout in those first uh, few weeks. Probably about 40% of our population tends to come right out and wants to get vaccinated soon. So that's about 16,000 doses. Um, that we would get out over the coming few weeks and then looking at continuing to have that climb over the, the ensuing weeks and months as, as people review the information, get comfortable with it, and uh, and come forward with vaccinations. Um, we do always suggest that people come out as soon as they are eligible. So, so to start looking on the sites, look at where those clinics are, look at when would be best for you to go, look and see what other questions you may have. You can always call our hotline to ask any questions you have but there's a number of other great resources that are out there as well from hospital for sick children has a lot of information online our mcmaster's children's children's hospital has a lot of great information as well online um sick kids actually has a clinic you can call into and speak to a pediatric nurse and and talk through any questions about vaccines as well so a great time to go online take a look see if there's any other questions as you look through the information look through the consents and then to book in as soon as you can uh, what do you think the biggest challenge is going to be, Doctor, uh, vaccination, vaccinating this latest cohort, much different from adults? Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, having to have the parents there, it's a bit more of a sensitive issue. What do you see as, as your biggest challenge is trying to get this cohort vaccinated? 
Well, you know, when we're working through and working with kids, it's really important to make sure that we're, you know, having those conversations as as people come into the clinic answering questions. And, of course, we're interested in both what the, the children want and need in order for them to feel comfortable, but as well their parents. And so making sure we have the time, the, the space to do that is very, very important to us. Um, we do know that um, there can be more of this issue in terms of needles or that sort of thing. So that's why those other uh, clinic sites that McMaster runs are very, very important, as well as for kids who have special needs. Um, you know, much like other uh, parts of the, the population, there are groups that take a little longer, that um, need a little bit more information. So certainly the work with our community partners, faith leaders, all of that work has been critical to getting here. And I think we'll, we'll see it go forward um, steadily as the, uh, the vaccine becomes available and people get through, look at the information and make a decision for themselves. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson with us, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton, talking about vaccinating the kids 5 to 11. And, uh, of course, you can book as of tomorrow. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with the staff and getting this done. We're all behind you. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Lots of chatter in regard to inflation recently, especially with you know 4.4 and then 4.7%, gasoline, fuel, a big part of that. Groceries, also a big part of that. Like I need to tell you, everybody's got to eat. And uh, supply chain troubles continue right away, uh, right away across the board. That includes groceries. Global's short supply series is looking at these issues. Let's bring in Erica Alini, money reporter with Global News and author of the forthcoming book, Money Like You Mean It, due out December 9th. Erica is with us now. Erica, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we hear lots about supply chain issues. We see the, you know, the container ships and whatever blocked up in ports and, and these bottlenecks and such. But a lot of the time when we're thinking of that, we're thinking of dry goods. How much of this is actually affecting groceries and things that we consume on a daily basis? So uh, it's been affecting food uh, and, you know, agricultural commodities, uh, but it's uh, probably going to become more of an issue going forward just because we're coming off the growing season here in Canada Mm. in many parts of the states. So as it always happens, you know, when we when we enter winter, we're going to start to import a lot more of our fresh uh, fruits and vegetables from uh, far-flung places, uh, and with the supply chain snarls that you're, you're seeing, this is going to be an issue. And when you're, when you're dealing with uh, perishable goods, then that gets really tricky. Yeah, you bring up a valid point, Erica. Um, you know, if you're going to start with, uh, say, a delivery date that's uh, five days or ten days, and then all of a sudden you're doubling that and tripling that, uh, are, will a lot of these products even be shipped if they won't arrive to their destination and and still be worth consuming? Yeah, and, uh, you know, I spoke to um, a wholesale uh, buyer of produce uh, here in Ontario, and he was telling me, you know, um, at this point of the year, I usually start to get my blueberries from, from Peru, and normally a container of blueberries will take, you know, 10, 12 days to get uh, to Toronto, Nowadays, we're looking at 20, 25 days, and those blueberries are not going to be very good uh, with that kind of delay. So we're definitely going to see some changes in the menu come uh, the wintertime. There's just stuff that may not be available. Yeah, and it's, that's not to say that, uh, you know, it, it, it's always difficult to say, even when, when I speak to supply chain managers and retailers, 
Um, it, it often, they don't know what's not going to come in. Yeah. Um, it, it's really unpredictable or really difficult uh, even for them to forecast what's going to be on the shelves and what isn't. And obviously we've seen what's happened in British Columbia in the last uh, a few days and week and such with their flooding. How has that affected all this? Yeah, that really throws another wrench into the uh, supply chain uh, problem. Um, so that's affecting, it's mostly showing up uh, in terms of shortages uh, right now, obviously in British Columbia itself. And then, um, you know, in Alberta, and as you, what I've been told is that, you know, as you move further away from British Columbia, we'll feel the impact of that less and less. Um, but yeah, showing up in, in terms of, uh, in terms of shortages and we'll see depending on, you know, how long it takes, uh, to, to repair the, the, the railways and you know, what kind of delays we're, we're looking at. Uh, it might also be reflected in prices. It's going to be interesting to see if this changes uh, buying habits in any way. You know, we've we've heard many people say we have to change the way we do things. We can't just expect to have certain fruits and vegetables in the middle of winter. That's just not Canada. Any any chatter of any of that? Yeah, I think people are already uh, changing their their buying habits. Uh, I mean, I, unless uh, you know you're. You're so well off that you don't really mind yeah. your grocery bill. You have to really pay attention to to prices, um, and uh, certainly, I think a lot of people will be switching from fresh produce to to frozen fruits and vegetables. And the other one that really hits you in the wallet is um, meat, and particularly beef. And that brings me to to another issue. So, you know, with food, it's not just uh, the supply chain problems; it's also um, climate change, uh, you know, and these extreme weather events that we're seeing. So with the case of British, British Columbia, that just makes the supply chain issue worse. But we also had the drought in Western yeah. Canada, and that's really being reflected in uh, beef prices. Erica Alini with us, money reporter with Global News, author of the forthcoming book, Money Like You Mean It, due out December 9. Erica, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, you too. To catch up on the news and information you've missed, this is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, Parliament resumes, uh, choosing the Speaker of the House today, uh, largely pomp and circumstance, but uh, after the election, which seems like quite a while ago now, uh, it appears that Parliament uh, is ready to gear up and, and be in place for tomorrow. It's 421, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board, Ted and Diana in the newsroom, and will join us around the big round table coming up after the 430 News. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, yes, Scott. So uh, when we start this uh, this session of Parliament, many, uh, many have uh, wondered what has taken so long. Are we going to spend the first few weeks figuring out what conservatives are vaccinated and what ones aren't? Are we actually going to get some business done here? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, we're going to have the speech from the throne, so right after that you can start you know, if the government wants and pushes ahead, it can it can get some work, you know, work done, can get things passed. We'll have to see if they're going to move quickly or not. Uh, what do you think the big deal is going to be through this session? Uh, not a very long one. What can they get done in this short period of time? Well, I mean, if you know, they, they would pick their legislation. I mean, given the fact that I think the 
the uh, the liberals can, can count either on the support of the NDP or the bloc, depending on what the issue is. They can they can really get through what they want to get through in in a really reasonable period of time. So it's not completely clear exactly what they're going to do. Uh, first of all, uh, so and we'll, we'll get a good hint of that at the, in, in the uh, speech from the throne tomorrow. So. You know, there's a few things they they might they might do things on the economy and uh, some other some other things, but uh, yeah. So we'll just have to wait and see what they what they really are going, going to want to uh, emphasize uh, in this pre-Christmas sort of session. And we will cover that throne speech live tomorrow. What are you expecting? Are you expecting largely a rehash of what we heard through uh, the election campaign and such? Is this a refocus? Do you think we'll see anything new here? I'm not so. I mean, I I may be surprised. I mean, I what we do know is that the uh, the voters and and uh, for the liberals, the the NDP, the Greens, and probably a good part of the bloc is has been the virus. And I think we're going to get a renewal of fighting the virus, especially since we're now seeing uh, an, another upsurge. Although it, we're all hoping that it's not going to be like anything we've seen in the past because of the vaccination. And I think. Basically, the government's going to, you know, basically talk about we got to get every, we got to get 90 percent of the people vaccinated, and uh, and then sometime in the future they're going to they're going to want to get 90 percent of the people with three, you know, two vac, two of the main shots, and then a uh, and then a booster. So uh, they're I think they they real I mean I think their position is going to be is that we can't really get going on the economy until you know people really feel safe, and they're not going to feel safe until we have. Uh, you know, uh, pe- people are heavily, you know, vaccinated, and uh, I think they're going to emphasize that. That I would expect that would be, you know, lead. That's that would be the main main message. Uh, obviously, leading through a pandemic and leading after or in the end of a pandemic, when all the bills start to come in and you've got to rebuild, is two totally uh, different mm-hmm. uh, scenarios. Uh, do you think there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of feisty debate in this uh, in this session, or do you think everyone's going to get along? Well, I mean, it could be. I mean, uh, the problem is, is the opposition is is basically you know not going not doesn't seem to be prepared to fight on on their main issue, which is the economy, because they're all fighting over vaccines and mandates and things like that. If you know, if they if they didn't spend their time, you know, fighting with each other over that and just basically decided they're going to go after the government on on the economy, then I think it would be a very interesting session and uh, they'd really put some pressure on 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 the government and uh, and the other parties inside the you know the parliament. So I they've got to get their act together, and right now they don't have it. And so it pretty much gives a a free run for the liberals to do whatever they want. Yeah. So. Uh, now that that being said, though, Henry, now that uh, Parliament will be back in session, I mean, right. obviously, those that are there are playing by the rules. How long can you keep making this uh, an issue if you're the liberals? Well, I mean, because they're all there. They're all doing it as of tomorrow. So yeah, what happens well, after that? Well, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how they're going to do. But I mean, the liberals know that they're not going to be defeated. Uh, they're mm. going to be they, if they they're in a in a very 
you know, they're not in a majority situation, but they know that the uh, opposition parties, other than the conservatives, certainly don't want anything like an election. So they're going to have to pretty much go along and keep this government going. So it, it's basically they, they feel fairly comfortable. And uh, I think they're, you know, they, they essentially know that if they, they want to essentially get this virus beaten down because they know not only can they take declare victory, but what they feel is that people are not going to feel, you know, go, like they're going back to normal and, and worrying and doing all the economic things that need to be done and, until people do that. So there's, there's, just a lot, there's still a lot of hesitancy among people to go out to restaurants and to do, do other type of activities, go to work. And, and essentially, you know, they're, they're, we're just not we're just not back to normal times. And we really and their their view is we've got to we've got to finish off the virus here. We've got to get uh, everybody up to 90 to 95 percent. And, and as I say, they're getting a, going to get people ready to face the, the view that they, they want people, you know, to have three shots uh, beginning in the new year. I, I would think that's what they're going to talk about. Only got a few seconds left here, Henry. Uh, we're seeing lots of pomp and circumstance today. This is tradition. It's part of what goes on with opening of new parliament, this picking, uh, the picking of the speaker and such. But many may look at this today as we don't have time for this right now. How does this play with Canadians, even though it is steep in tradition? Well, I just think people, most people ignore it. Uh, yeah. There are, there are <laughs> a few, few of us who, who sort of enjoy watching this sort of stuff. But we know, you know, this is just, this is sort of like the, an opening prelude. It's like an overture to uh, to an opera or to uh, to mm. some sort of performance. It's not the main act, but it's just sort of getting getting people warmed up. It's the warm up, the warm up to the real business that gets going tomorrow. Maybe Henry, we should have a comedian open up the house instead, just to have a little, maybe a little jazz. I'm just kidding. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, pa- uh, Parliament back in action tomorrow. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. We'll chat again. Be well. Okay, very good. Thank you. All right, we all saw the uh, shipments of uh, vaccine. The kids, uh, uh, kids' version of uh, the COVID nine Pfizer vaccine arrive in the, at Hamilton International Airport over the course of the weekend. Obviously, it had been approved by Health Canada prior to that and uh looks like uh and now with the um the booking sites opening up as of tuesday morning in order to schedule an appointment for someone who is 5 to 11 we are uh soon going to be having this into the arms of kids let's bring in dr omar khan assistant professor with the institute of biomedical engineering and the department of immunology with the university of toronto and is with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well hi good to be here your thoughts on where we are now with finally getting this final cohort approved for vaccination and, and challenges with the kids. What's the difference between uh, mass vaccination of the kids versus adults? Well, first of all, it's really great because we've struggled for a long time with this unequal risk across people. So people fully vaccinated have less risk, but we saw consistently high numbers in this lower age group that was unvaccinated simply because they had no vaccines available to them. So by spreading out the, reducing everyone's risk, we get to a better place overall. And we've learned so much about deploying these vaccines. We've struggled through supply issues. And now it's just incredible to see that enough vaccines were secured to give everyone their first dose in a timely way. So we're really learning from this and benefiting from everything that's happened in the past. 
Uh, we know that this was approved, obviously, by Health Canada for uh, use in kids 5 to 11 years of age. Has there been any conflicting information between NACI and Health Canada? Because we had an expert on yesterday that was saying, um, just just creating uh, just a little bit of uncertainty and saying that this may be used in kids. Is there any discrepancy about what NACI or what Health Canada is saying here? Well, Health Canada's job is to look at the clinical data that comes from the company Mm -hmm. and then make a recommendation and and approval based on what data they have. NASCI, what they do is that they look at all that and then they make a a separate recommendation. They're meant to be two independent arms that complement each other. But what this means is that, you know, talk to your healthcare provider and then they'll help you make that final call because they should, your pediatrician should have your entire medical history for your child. And if they know something is up or there could potentially be an allergy issue, that sort of thing, those things can be addressed by your healthcare practitioner. So that's why it's important to make these decisions with the doctor and not in a vacuum, not on your own. This is what that is. That's the spirit of all this. We know the uh, the objective of both Health Canada and NACI here and how their roles are different here, but what we've been really concerned about in the past is that by the time it gets to the public that the messaging has been consistent. Do you feel the messaging is consistent now and it's a good idea to, to move forward with this vaccination unless, of course, there's other uh, extra, you know, external situations that, that, that perhaps aren't typical? I think it's... A- good time to have people vaccinated. I think it's consistent. I think over the past year, the public in general has gotten really great immunology lessons. It's like they took an entire university course and they've learned so much. So I think people are becoming much more aware of what this technology is and, and the benefits. So, and I think they're aware of the limitations of each body, Health Canada and NASI. And I think it's all trending towards the right thing that if we can all get vaccinated, we're all at the same level of risk. We don't have to worry as much. Absolutely. Uh, what about the time between doses for kids 5 to 11? Is it similar to what, obviously, we've stretched it out a bit due to lack of supply with the adults way back when, then found out that that was the, the better way to do things. What about kids? It looks like it's going to be up to two months between doses, which is great. We, mm-hmm. we do know that a bit more time between them tends to help, and we've experienced that here in Canada, and that also influences the need for a potential third shot. So these can all help us, especially if we expect some issues with supply later on. If we've stretched out our first two doses, that, that helps. But I think the biggest implication that happens here is that we have to remember that these kids, after they get their first dose, are not protected. You have to wait a bare minimum of two weeks after your second dose hmm. to, to start getting that permanent immunity. So that's, you know, two months and two weeks potentially so that people have to plan for that and still practice, you know, good habits like masking, washing hands, keeping distance until everyone is up to the same level. Great point. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering in the Department of Immunology, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks. Take care, everybody. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. 900 CHML, this is the big round table. 
Scott Thompson here doing a magnificent impression of producer Will Erskine. Ted and Diana are both with us. How are you two doing today? Uh, uh, fine. We're a little, little <laughs> surprised about here. Scott. <laughs> little, he's, he's, gone, uh, he's gone wandering, not just wondering. Uh, yeah, he wanted to give you guys something nice. He wanted to play us in with some Neil Young uh, from his Rockabilly album there. And uh, Scott will join us momentarily. I'm going to hear him uh, in my ear as soon as he's with us. But hey. Right. We can talk. We can talk, right? We're all friends here. We can talk. I'm sure Scott will be back any moment. Yeah, he will be. I mean, he might be getting some ice cream or playing with the dog or something. I don't know. So. So, uh, first off, how, yes. are, how are you two doing? How was your weekend? Well, I watched football, as always, uh, in an ordinate amount of football, actually. So, yesterday, both my teams lost. I'm not in a good mood. So, you know, Packers lost, and uh, the Bills got skunked. How so. do you feel about that, Diane? Uh, well, you know, uh, Ty Cats won. That was nice. But uh, Browns also won, which was nice. It was a very small margin. So, I'm here. Oh, well, don't sound so enthused. Man, I hate when this happens. I can hear you guys talking, and I'm like madly trying to dial back in. And I'm hearing the music playing. I'm yelling, Will, Will, Will. And here we are. So let's get rocking. You guys ready? Yes. Uh, let's start with let's start with the poll question of the day. Did Hamilton make the right call to stop the urban boundary expansion? I know you guys are news uh, people, so you don't want to give too much opinion here. But I guess what I'm looking at here is is the future for young families to live in a house or in a high rise? Do you want to weigh in on this, Diana? Uh, I don't think that it necessarily is what it used to be. I think a lot of younger families uh, and millennials are thinking maybe that a high rise could be a home for kids. At least that's the, you know, the trend that I'm seeing, um, at least in maybe not in Hamilton. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, I guess the house is still the main, uh, you know, the main holy grail for home ownership. Obviously, this is about filling in infield land or expanding the urban boundary. Uh, I'm confused as to why we can't do both, because there's situations when you're doing infill where medium uh, or more de higher density housing is warranted. However, it's more difficult to uh, do a housing complex, per se, and obviously with a cost. Is there not a happy medium here? Can't we do both? I don't know, but I, I will say that uh, I think still uh, owning a home is becoming uh, more and more problematic for uh, the couples that are just getting married or starting out or, you know, starting a relationship. Uh, I'm not uh, convinced that kid, uh, kid, geez, I'm not convinced that younger people, the younger demographic wants to live in a high rise apartment, especially if they start a family. I, I, I don't buy that. I never have. And I think that they do want to buy a house. The issue becomes how expensive is it going to be? And the only point of that is given the decision that was made last week, how much more difficult is it now going to be able to afford a house if there's no chance mm. for people to expand. And that's simply because there's less supply. I yes. mean, if you if you don't create the supply, then it just makes the people who already own uh, own a home, the yep. value of theirs go up and, and impossible for the next to get in. Will, you want to weigh in on this? Well, my main thought is obviously everyone has their own personal taste and everything, but more partly to Ted's point is how much of wanting to have the house is knowing what you need from your family, from whatever your plans are for the future, and how much 
much is just following the step-by-step, -step, this is what we're supposed to do, and people kind of go through that rhythm. And I think a lot more young people are thinking through, well, what am I actually planning on here? Could I make this work with an apartment, with a condo, with some sort of yurt in the woods, whatever their future plans are? They have to, they have to take a look at what's outside the usual patterns that they've got embedded in their heads. I think what people are forgetting, too, is it it also gives young couples, young people a chance to invest in their future because usually it's something that appreciates. So it's yeah. the best way for the average person to start building a nest egg and invest uh, in themselves. And, and, and I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure people want to give up that option. Well, I'll say this. What do they always say, the, uh, you know, financial people? You never lose. Well, don't say never. Real estate is a good investment. Always yeah. has been. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And all I can tell you is this. When we bought our house uh, in 1984, we paid just under $60,000 then. Now. Oh, my God. And I, <laughs> and I asked, I asked um, somebody who was in the home building industry a while ago, and he's never seen my hell without. I said, just for the sake of, he said, you could get $800,000 for your home right now, yeah, which absolutely. is absolutely obscene good for me where am i gonna go into a multi-million dollar home no so but the fact that it's skyrocketed that much shows you what people are up against and again uh, nothing new there it's been that for a long time hamilton's just seeing those increases now simply because of the way it's been for the last 20 or 30 years or so all right i want to end up this uh, on a lighter fare uh, it is november what is considered uh, considered a hip mustache today will and i have been watching news feeds and the same news feed and literally joking about look at that guy's mustache man it looks like a cop stash from 1970 the answer so to is that is none no mustache. <laughs> hey. Zero. Wait a sec. Is this my wife I'm talking to right now? My husband is doing Movember, and it's like a caterpillar above his upper lip. I am not a fan, although I commend him for doing, you know, the Movember thing and... Yeah, sure, it's all for a great cause. But you're not you're not a big fan of the facial hair. What about the full beard you see guys with? I love the beard. Uh, my husband normally has facial hair. Uh, not straggly, not long, just, you know, a nice beard. Um, but now it's just the stash, and he does look, have that, you know, that old cop look. And I, I don't so, know, man. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so you, you don't mind the beard. You're not a fan of just the single stash. Correct. Wow. Well, what about... And me, me and Ted, we both tried growing our mustaches in over the, uh, had, over the pandemic. The, yeah. You have the old 70s porno stash, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get that handlebar mustache. That's exactly. Yeah. I, I shaved it off just a couple months ago, but I spent most of the summer because I figured, hey, I'm wearing a mask most of the time. I can do whatever I want with my facial hair. Can I pull this off? I ended up looking like a walrus. I don't remember Ted with facial hair ever. He, Ted, you grew a mustache last year for Nove November? Uh, no, no, no. I, I had a mustache for both qu uh, quick story. Yeah. 30, 35 years. Oh, Sha wow. Shaved oh, yeah. it probably for good about, uh, well, it, it was actually 2004 is when I saved it. But if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, boy, you look like Eugene Levy in that mustache. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, oh, wow. Uh, okay, so, then. So I can I, only grow I can only grow hair in places where you really don't want to see it. Uh, so thank you. Oh my! Wow, that's a I'm great visual. It's four forty six. It's time to leave. Shave I'm it off. Never, get I'm, some scotch tape. <laughs> I am no contender for November at all. I'll just write a check. All right, City Council has voted not to expand the urban boundary in favor of fill-in growth within the current city limits. 
My question is, is why is this always an extreme view? Why is it either one or the other? Why can't we do both? Dr. Frank Clayton is with us, Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Frank, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. Thank you. So uh, City Council, Hamilton City Council, decided not to expand its urban boundary and instead uh, accommodate any new population growth through infill uh, development. Your thoughts on that? Well... My first reaction is I'm very happy we have a province who oversees the uh, the, the city and the province and make sure that that doesn't that will not that policy will not stay into a, in effect. Um, what it means is that uh, they they've got this warped idea that the only thing that's important in life is, is the environment and what people want to how people want to live and where they want to live and where they want to work. All these kinds of things uh, they don't really care about. Hmm. Uh, and they got this warped idea that for that people, if they're going to be in Hamilton, they're going to just love to be in an apartment. Yeah, uh, that's just not the way the world operates because we have a democracy where people choose where they want to live and the type of housing they want to live in. So, so what 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 they what will really happen is that they think they're protecting the environment, but all they're going to do is uh, force uh, people who want low density housing and, and work in the city of Hamilton to move farther away. Like they're doing already, uh, moving to you know uh, Niagara Region, Brantford, uh, even to Woodstock, uh, and those areas, uh, and commuting more and and adding the greenhouse gases. So, so it's just uh, something. Uh, uh, it's just not a balanced approach to what the problems of our society are. It's a, it's you know this way or no way, and, 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 and it's wrong. And, and is it an opinion that really reflects society in a post-COVID nineteen global pandemic world? I mean, if anything, people have been asking for more space. They want that chance to go out in, into a backyard. Well, it's it's both the uh, pandemic that 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 added to the pressure, but also the millennials. Uh, that that you know that big group that came on. You know, it's really the next. It's, it's mm-hmm. bigger than what the almost as big as if not bigger than what the baby boom generation was, and they're in the age group now that they they want to have more space. They're starting to get uh, paired up, having children or having dogs, but they want to be ground related housing. And uh, so what what this policy does is make. Uh, existing ground-related housing even more expensive. So people who own houses in in Hamilton now just have to sit back and wait for the money to roll yeah. in because it's all tax-free gain caused by because uh, demand's got going to go down, supply's going to go down, so prices will go up more. So can we provide the diversity of housing that we need with infill? Can we not only provide you know an apartment-type condo place, or can we provide housing? Uh, 80% of the housing, if you look at the development applications in the city of Toronto in the build-up area, the, uh, 80% of the applications uh, are for apartments. And mm-hmm. that's typical in um, every municipality that I've seen around the greater Toronto region, is that it's more expensive to build, you know, to replace things and to uh, tear down buildings or re- re- redevelop. And um, uh, it's much more expensive, so land costs are more expensive, so you get apartments. You don't get if you do get some single detached houses, they're usually just replacing existing single detached houses, or they're going to be very, very expensive. But about eighty percent of the housing in the build-up area of of Hamilton will be apartments. Twenty, you know, some you'll know, be some townhouses and a very few singles. Uh, the mayor said this is always something that uh, they can revisit and make adjustments as need be. 
uh, it defeats the whole purpose of planning ahead. Mm. The growth plan is trying to get people to municipalities to think 30 years ahead about land requirements, infrastructure, you know, transit. Because you can't re- you can't turn this around in, in, in one year or two years or five years. You need time t- to turn the machine, you know, this whole urban re- regime around uh, and the structure. And you have to. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes, you know, to get land through the system often or to get redevelopment applications through the system, it can take five or ten years uh, to do that. So so this is all, you know, it's not immediate. It's good. We're planning for the long term, and you can't turn the... Uh, turn the system around quickly. Does this discussion always play out this way? It seems we've been having it for decades. Um, well, it's more so now. I mean, the, 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 the Planning Act of, province, of the province is, you know, uh, the Planning Act is intended to provide uh, a framework for urban development in the province. And it has social goals, it has economic goals, it has, uh, it has environmental goals. And, and, and they've got to be a balance. And uh, the growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe actually does have quite a neat balance between uh, protecting the environment and allowing for more more housing of the kinds of housing that people want, and so be more affordable. It's a, it's a good balance between the two. We we can't go one way or the other. Yeah. Other, uh, because we got to remember we have a hundred thousand people grow coming into our region every year, and we got to accommodate those not just in apartments but in a range of housing. Uh, and, and, you know, you bring up a valid point here too, Frank. It's always as if this is an either-or discussion as opposed to a combination of the two. Yeah, and I don't understand. Uh, I, I really don't understand that. I mean, the, the, the growth plan, if one reads the growth plan, it is a really a balanced document, in my opinion, between the environment and, and the, uh, the economics and the housing market. And uh, that, that is what we need. We need balance. It's not one or the other. Uh, because if you do one or the other, you're going to have uh, inadvertent impacts that you didn't want to have. <laughs> and, and, and I see them from the housing market side because that's my area of expertise. And I see, I can see all the negative results, uh, things are going to be happening around Hamilton and the greater Toronto area because of uh, decisions like the city of Hamilton. So what is your answer? What do you say to those that are concerned about urban sprawl and agree with this decision? Well, f- f- first of all, uh, cities have to grow up or the urban areas have to grow up and out. And the growth plan made sure that minimum of 50% of all housing has to be built in the build-up area. So that leaves 50% out in the, uh, the greenfield areas. And that's quite a change. And uh, for the whole Toronto region, that really means two-thirds of all housing will be in the, uh, in the, in the build-up areas because the city of Toronto is 100% in the build-up areas. So, so we've we got a good balance there. And, and uh, Hamilton's got a role to play, but Hamilton's got a role to play both for apartments but also provide low-density uh, low housing. And I'm sure the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing is going to, you know, uh, put a veto to what the city has done and and tell them to do something different. Dr. Frank Clayton with us, Senior Research Fellow, Centre for Urban and Land Development, Ryerson University, talking about the urban boundary discussion and how uh, a bit of both is really what we need. Uh, Frank, thanks for the time. Be well. Very welcome. Okay, thanks. Goodbye. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. You might remember on Friday we spoke with Professor Elliot Tepper about the convoluted case of missing tennis star Peng Shui who disappeared after she made accusations of sexual assault against a former member of the Chinese Communist Party's ruling standing standing committee. We now have word from the International Olympic Committee that they have been in contact with the tennis star, but it appears there are more questions than there are answers. Uh, Elliot Tepper with us now. 
professor of political science, Carleton University. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, good afternoon, Scott. So what has happened here, uh, Elliot? Decode this uh, for us. Do we know anything more about this tennis star? Hello? Can you hear me, Elliot? Just now, yes. You blanked oh. out on me. <laughs> oh, oh, let me try again. Okay, so uh, obviously uh, the IOC has made contact, but there seems to be more questions than answers now. Do we know anything more about this case or, or her whereabouts? Yes, we know a lot more about it. it uh, what it shows is the, the Communist Party has really moved uh, in response to the global reaction uh, and the WTO, the Women's Tennis Association, reaction to the disappearance of uh, Peng Wan, uh, after she accused uh, an innermost member of the Politburo, there's only seven on them members on that, so she accused one of the elite of China, of the Communist Party of China, of assault. Then she disappeared for two weeks, and that's in essence, when questioned about it, the government said, the party said, well, just give us a couple days, uh, she'll appear. And I became much more worried at that point. I, uh, that sounded ominous to me. And indeed, what we now have is a reappearance, but very much in the mode of previous and kind of standard operating procedures of people in China who um, are dissident in one way or another, or show autonomy, not necessarily dissident, but something not quite under the control of the party. The party brings it back under control, and you have these kind of staged uh, appearances, and the WTA and others have said, no, this is not satisfactory. We don't accept appearances on nothing but state apparatus broadcast abroad in English and not within China as any guarantee of her, of her freedom from coercion. So uh, any details as to her condition or where she might be? Well, uh, it was a long video, it was about 30 minutes, and there were some other little clips as well saying that the, the, uh, her statement is that she's at home with her family, she wants her privacy to be respected, that she's fine. Uh, then she was shown out in public at a dinner uh, with friends, but <laughs> the friends included uh, a member of the party that uh, is part of the, 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 the uh, tennis association there, the, the functionary in charge. And they apparently kept correcting her when she said, well, this is the 20th. No, dear, it's actually the 21st. So showing um, on air that, you know, things are fine according to that date. And then she was shown signing enlarged tennis balls with children, adorable children, tennis star beaming. But so far, that's only served, I'm afraid, for everyone to be even more concerned about her situation. How much clout does the IOC or women's tennis here uh, have? Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Well, those are two different issues. Uh, yeah. the, the IOC has said uh, right away, let us work on this through quiet diplomacy. And now they're right. saying, look, quiet diplomacy works. Uh, we worked with, our, with the Chinese on this. They're the host of the Olympics. And look, um, as a result of our quiet diplomacy, they're implying, now you see that she is indeed safe and well and, and happy. But the WTO, on the other hand, is saying, no, we don't accept what we see in front of us as, as that kind of evidence. Both of those organizations rely very heavily on the revenue that comes from their participation in China. The IOC gets a read, 91% of their funds from selling the rights to, to people to watch the Olympics around the world and for ads and so forth. And the WTO had a very lucrative 10-year contract, we're finding out, as a result of all of this, um, where 
in, in particular in Shenzhen, uh, an important high-tech city right across from Hong Kong. So they, they were going to play some of the key tournaments there. And the WTA said, we'll forego all of that if we can't be assured that our, our people are going to be well looked after. And that includes Penn. What does the world, what does uh, women's tennis want out of this? What do they want to see as confirmation? They want to see that she is free of coercion and safe. Uh, and that means having a venue that is not controlled by the party apparatus itself. And until that happens, they say they're not going to be content. It, can she get out of China at this point? Well, Peng Wanche, she's, she's, a, she's a star. Yeah. Back up on this. Uh, I, I think one of the lessons, before we answer that particular question, I think one of the key lessons of all of this is nobody and no entity inside China is going to threaten the situation of, uh, and the role of the party. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a billionaire like Jack Ma, the head of Alibaba and others, um, he disappeared for quite some time after being chastised. He, he got too big. Anything that gets too big or shows autonomy uh, can, can uh, come under the scrutiny of the party. There was, there was also a movie star that had the same treatment as we're seeing now with Peng Wanche. So we've got, we have a situation where anything that threatens the autonomy and the control of the party, uh, threatens to escape the party through autonomy, is brought back under control. And that's what I think we're seeing now. Can she leave China? Well, that's an interesting question. Maybe somebody like Canada or others should invite her just to see what happens. But, uh, and that, of course, would be what the WTA would like. But there's no sign that, uh, according to her own statements, that she's interested in leaving her family or that she's, in fact, therefore able. Where do you see this story going? Um, I, think, I think there's two things to keep in mind. One is the immediate situation now is that the Olympics are pending. Mm. The possibility that there will be some kind of boycott of the Olympics or something that causes China to lose face over the Olympics is of concern to the, to the regime, to the party. Therefore, the pressure on this particular incident, this particular case, if it's maintained, uh, could, could lead to the broader concerns. Uh, the human rights groups are calling this the Genocide Olympics because of the situation of the Uyghurs, and don't forget the Tibetans, and what about Hong Kong, and why should everybody be there in the first place? So it adds strength to the boycott um, uh, initiative, and there's, well, maybe we should just not send diplomats in, and maybe there's a creative idea in today's paper that, well, maybe the athletes should not show up at the opening and closing ceremony, says an mm. expert here. But all of that is one side of it. I think the missing piece of all this that has not been brought to attention is that this incident is considered to be a possible you know, threat to the autonomy of the party, or to the, to the existence of the party through autonomy. The, the Me Too movement this is all talked about. You know, mm. transparency should be brought to the case of this particular tennis star. But, you know, transparency isn't part of Xi Jinping's China. Well, what about accountability? Oh, that's not part of it. The Me Too movement really calls for a um, democratic society with a robust civil society, an open society. That's not Xi Jinping's China as well. So part of that is the immediate situation and, and what's leading up to the uh, Olympics, which is imminent. But beyond that, next year is really the big ticket item for Xi Jinping because he just now, earlier this month, got acclaimed by the party itself to be part of the pantheon along with 
Mao Zedong and uh, Deng Xiaoping, of great communist transformational leaders. Next year is going to be a party congress where the possibility exists that he could be challenged in reaching out to uh, be acclaimed for another five-year term, that is, Mm -hmm. to be leader forever. And that's the big ticket item for Xi Jinping, and I don't think anything will be allowed to stand in the way of that, including the case of a tennis star uh, who's gaining some international attention now. This story is not over by any means. Elliot Tepper with us, political science, Carleton University, talking about uh, the Chinese Canadian, or sorry, the Chinese tennis player that uh, now, even having contact with the IOC, is raising more questions than it is answers. Uh, Elliot, thanks for the time. As always, be well. Oh, you're very welcome, and be well to you uh, as well, Scott. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 great listening to all these stories about urban uh, sprawl and and the urban boundary. And, you know, we've food security has become an important issue with the fires and the floods. And the I don't think food security has ever been stronger than it is now. Uh, it's not 1820. It's 2020. And the way we do things is a lot different. And going back to the farm, although sounds romantic, isn't necessarily how you solve the problem here. And last time I checked, every single square inch of Canada If it's not water, it's farmland of some sort, whether you're farming agricultural uh, agriculture or natural resources. Get up in a plane and look around. we got to build smart cities, not keep stacking people up like cardwood and pretend that we're living in Europe. It's a different country with a different set of solutions. Again, we all love our farmers, (laughs) but the food industry has come a tremendous long way in the last 100 years. Uh, and, and isn't necessarily the way it always was. And again, you can go back and promise your kids that they won't have a house and they have to live a smaller life, but I don't think that is how the world spins forward and progresses. We move forward. We don't move backwards. We find solutions. We don't make compromise. All right, uh, 5.53, and Scott Radley's coming up. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, right after the 6 o'clock news, and is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. All I can see, Scott, is uh, the future of all that farmland growing cannabis. <laughs> that's, that's where the money is. Just yeah. About 1,300 hectares of Hamilton cannabis growing. You know, I, I certainly understand <laughs> the studio audience going mad. I can certainly yeah. understand in, in under you know how we have to balance and protect farmland and, and that sort of thing. But there isn't a part of our geography that is waste. There isn't a part of our geography that we don't use in some form. Hell, they even drained a lake, uh, drained a lake to build Abbotsford on. Not a very smart idea, uh, you know. Twenty twenty hindsight, uh, but you know, it, it just it it just amazes me how we keep using that same argument that you know uh, uh, we have a, a very limited amount of space. That's just not the case. We've got enough space to build. I'm not saying be a pig about it. I'm not saying just go out and build homes. But why can't we do both, Scott? Why can't we infill the the city's open areas? And why can't we add other stuff? It's like everybody want. Everybody thinks that now that they have a house, that the younger generations are just going to want to live in an apartment. Uh, I don't okay, see so it. A couple things. A couple things. The first one is. Um, you know, council made this decision. It seemed by at least the loudest voices that it was a popular decision. 
so we will have this. I, I don't believe that this is the last we will have heard about it. I think within a few years, if not before then, this is going to be back on the table nonetheless. Well, apparently the uh, provincial government can override this. And that's why I say it's either going to be the provincial so government. So it's irrelevant. Or it's going to be council that will once again revisit this. Because here's here's one of the things that was brought up, and and I, revisiting isn't planning. That's what the prof said no, to me. You can't no, keep revisiting this in a couple of years. You got to come up with a plan and then follow it. You can make adjustments to it, but you can't make the plan as you go. So one of the arguments that was made was, well, look, expanding the boundary has not kept house prices down, and that's absolutely true. We know what's happened to housing prices in in this city. What we don't know is that if you had stopped allowing growth of homes up until now. Uh, how much more prices might have gone up because demand would have been lower. We will see. And and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you're wrong, and maybe somehow this will not change anything. I don't tend to think so. The other issue, though, Scott, and the bigger one for me on this one is this. Almost every time, it seems, somebody in this city, a developer or someone in the city, comes forward with an idea to build a large high-rise, there are instantly all kinds of complaints. <laughs> not that in my backyard. Ruin, not in my backyard. Or, it, or it'll ruin the view or it will do this. Once this is passed, to me, those arguments can't be given almost any consideration. Because if the numbers that council was dealing with are that you're going to have to have 110,000 new housing units by 2051. 110,000. You're not going to be able to do that on the available space with two and three story small frame buildings. You're going to have to have skyscrapers and big buildings. So the idea that we can now say, I don't, I, you know, I don't want the, the boundary expanded, but I also want to keep the, the, the tradition and the, 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 the feel of Hamilton as not a skyscraper city. I, I don't believe you can have both. So, so it's going to be one or the other, and they've chosen not to expand the boundary. So I just don't, I don't expect that council will entertain complaints from people about buildings being too big. I think yeah. they have to say, I'm sorry, this is the way we're going and this is what's going to happen. I don't necessarily love that, but you can't have everything. You've got to pick which one you're going to do. I don't know. I think there's a balance here, and for some reason we live in a world of extremes, and that's just the way it is. Scott Radley is coming up next uh, right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thank you to Will and Diana and Ted for contributing today and obviously you for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word on the carbon taxes. Yes, I'm a great believer in the uh, global warming. I just think the liberals are doing a lousy job on it. So why is he still doing it?